So I'm joined here by resident soccer expert Lucas Pyle to discuss matters related to the English Premier League and also some European club competition. Welcome to the show, Lucas. Yeah, thanks for having me, Max. It's uh, good to be back on the show. Awesome. So yeah, I guess first starting out with uh, with some with some spicy Premier League action over this past weekend, we saw a three nil victory by Liverpool over Arsenal um, this past Saturday. What are your what are your reactions to that result? And and yeah, just general analysis and takeaways. Well, you know, I, I have to be honest. I don't think uh, Liverpool are going to have much of an easier game this season. Uh, from about the tenth minute mark, you could sort of tell how the trajectory of the game was going to go. Just Liverpool just didn't seem to lose the ball at all. They kept it in Arsenal's half, and it took them a little while to start creating chances, but Arsenal just never got going. Um, they only had one shot of note in the entire game, and it wasn't even that good of a chance. I mean, Liverpool were just completely dominant, and it was only a matter of time before they scored about midway through the second half. And once they got that goal, you just knew the game was over. Uh, Arsenal were just, to be brutally honest, were just abysmal atrocious I think the worst game that they've played this season and they've had some a few bad ones this year but just the lack of chances that they created along with really poor defensive mistakes especially in that second half in the first half you know they defended okay but you know the second half it was just a disaster and uh, it leaves them you know sort of head scratcher of a game and you know puts them in a really sort of bad position just morale wise uh, for you know the players and the fans going into a really important stretch for them this season. Thank you for your for your commentary there, Lucas. Yeah, it's pretty it's it's interesting to see that even in a you know I guess in in recent history's perspective, a down year for Liverpool that they you know ended up still having their way with the Gunners. Um, and and alluding to what you were saying at the end about about morale and the importance of of this of this upcoming stretch, um, I'll turn to. Um, uh, the European club competition that I was referencing at the top with, you know, Champions League and Europa League quarterfinal matches kicking off this week. We'll get to Arsenal, you know, in a little bit, but I guess just sort of high level first. Um, what, uh, so what are you looking forward to this week uh, when it comes to those matches? Well, it's sad to hear, you know, Arsenal not involved in the high level competitions, but that's as to be expected nowadays. <laughs> um, but, you know, with the Champions League uh, returning to quarterfinal matchups and there certainly a lot of, you know, big ones tomorrow, uh, Liverpool facing, you know, Real Madrid, it's certainly going to be uh, a much tougher test than they face it this weekend uh, away from home. And then uh, Manchester City play Borussia Dortmund. Um, and I think that one could be a very sort of high goal affair. Dortmund are kind of in a, a poor run of form this season. Uh, even, you know, the brilliance of the, you know, their young Norwegian forward, Erling Holland can't really keep them afloat right now. And, and Man City are flying high. So I think Man City are definitely favorites, but they've also tripped up uh, in these sort of games in recent seasons. So that should be really interesting. And then, of course, on Wednesday, uh, Bayern playing PSG, uh, Porto versus Chelsea. So a lot of really, you know, interesting, you know, matchups. I think Real Madrid Liverpool though should be the one to watch. Both teams have had some struggles in their league campaigns. Liverpool more especially, but you know, Liverpool coming off that big win this weekend, uh, they got you know their forward scoring Diogo Jota two goals, Mohamed Salah a goal. So I, I think they should have you know some more confidence going into that game. For sure. 
That's great. Yeah, it's uh, it looks like it's going to be a rematch, right, of the um, of the Champions League final from a couple of years ago. So it'll be yeah. interesting to see how those how the matchup compares. Um, so I guess uh, going to your to your bread and butter here, what's uh, what's some analysis and forecast of uh, of Arsenal's chances in their match in the Europa League? Well, yeah. So Arsenal, of course, in the Europa League in the quarterfinals, playing uh, against Slavia Prague uh and yeah in the quarterfinal matchup they're playing at home first and definitely not gonna be easy uh Slavia Prague knocked out Leicester uh in the round of 32 I forget who they played uh, in the round of 16 um but it it's definitely not gonna be easy and Arsenal are, are missing a, a couple good players you know David Louise is is an interesting one for the Gunners because you know he definitely has a mistake in him but at the same time, Arsenal do need him. He's one of their better defenders. I think just that just goes to show the state of the Arsenal team in general, that they really are desperate for David Luiz to return to full fitness. Rob Holding came back into the team this weekend, really didn't look that good. Um, and then I think they they should have Bukayo Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe back in the team, You know, two young players who helped rejuvenate Arsenal season back in December. So I think that'll be good to get them back into the team and, uh, yeah, I think Mikel Arteta has to sort of really sit and consider, you know, which players he's going to keep in the side and which big names he's going to have to drop. I think one of Lacazette or Aubameyang is destined to sit on the bench for this game. Um, and it'll be, you know, another big call uh, for Arteta. I think he has to, you know, make some gutsy decisions uh, to really, you know, get his side into the Champions League. Because, you know, if they don't win this competition, then it could be curtains uh, for his uh managerial uh stint uh with arsenal yeah i mean certainly from a from an earning standpoint i would think that you know um presumably getting knocked out of all european competition for next season based on um you know liverpool's or excuse me arsenal's current place in the table mm-hmm. would uh would you know definitely not um sit well with uh with management so i could definitely see arteta getting the boot well so yeah, with that, um, Lucas, thank you for coming on and and speaking all things European soccer. It's always a always a pleasure having this back and forth with you. And um, I, for one, am looking forward to the action. Wish you, wish your uh, Gunners best of luck, and hopefully, just generally, it'll be an entertaining week of uh, of football. Yeah, well, yeah. Thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure to be uh, on the Jumbo Cast show and. Uh... Yeah, here's to hopefully an Arsenal victory on Thursday, but we'll have to wait and see. Sounds great. Be well, Lucas. Thanks. I am joined here with Joe Schmidt um, to talk about college lacrosse. Um, how are you doing today, Joe? I'm doing well today, Max. How are you? Doing all right. Great. So let's jump into it. First, we'll we'll cover some uh, some of the D1 action that we've seen so far, and then move on to Tufts lacrosse at the end. So. I guess first starting out, we we saw a number of great matchups over the weekend, including a a one two matchup on both the men's and women's side. Um, which games did you happen to watch, Joe? And what were your uh, sort of impressions of them? Yeah, so on the women's side, um, we got to see number one UNC, who has looked like one of the best teams in the history of women's lacrosse, Division One women's lacrosse, um, play who we thought was going to be their real first test in number two Syracuse, but it ended up being an absolute blowout. Um, UNC won 17-6, to and they moved to 11-0 in the season, while Cues drops their first game of the season and are now 6-1. and 
Um, so when I was watching, the Orange started out really hot, scored four of the first five goals to take a 4-1 lead 10 minutes in. And then after that, um, UNC really showed that they're on a different level. Um, Syracuse didn't score again for 30 minutes. And in that time, uh, the Tar Heels put in 10 goals. And after that, the game was out of hand, and it wasn't close from there on. Um, I think the brightest point in the game for Syracuse was the draw circle, where Caitlin Mashuski, who's been a bit of a revelation this season, after um, their usual draw taker, Emily Harrischuk, went down with an ACL injury. Um, she more than held her own against Ali Mastriani and Scotty Rose Growney in the center, uh, who are two of the best in the country. The teams finished tied with 12 draws, draw controls each, but besides that and the ground balls, that was just about the only place where they were even. Um, for the Tar Heels, 2020 co-players of the year, Katie Hogue and Jamie Ortega were as dominant as usual. Um, Hogue had seven points and Ortega eight. Uh, Scotty Rose Grounding and Ali Mastriani each had four, four points. And holding Syracuse to six on the defensive side, uh, UNC was easily the most impressive. Um, the All-American defensewoman, Emma Trenchard, had a great game with four ground balls and three caused turnovers. And all throughout the game, the UNC defense caused key turnovers, leading directly to transition. Uh, Taylor Moreno, in goal for the Tar Heels, played really well as well. Uh, she had 11 saves on 17 shots faced. Uh, for the Orange, junior Megan Tyrell, who's been one of their best performers on the year. Um, she had four goals, and um, Megan Carney, who, after Harris Chuck's injury, is probably Syracuse's best player, had only one point, and she was covered by Trenchard the whole game. Um, the Orange missed all of their free positions. Uh, I believe they were all saved by Moreno. And for the first time this season, the Orange really looked like they were missing uh, the preseason Tuarton favorite, Emily Harris-Chuck. Um, who, as I said, is missing the entire season with an ACL injury. But hopefully we'll be able to see this matchup again because UNC has absolutely steamrolled everyone they've played so far this season. And Syracuse looks like one of the only two or three teams that will even have a chance to beat them. So the other game, the other women's game I was able to watch this weekend was uh, number five, Boston College, playing Duke. And in this one... Boston College took the took the win, seventeen to fifteen, in a really good, close, and physical game. Um, veteran leader Charlotte North, who was playing against her former team for the first time since transferring prior to the twenty twenty season, um, she was really emotional and energetic throughout, scoring six highlight reel goals, and once again showing you know that she may be the most dominant attack woman now that Harris Chuck is injured in the whole country in terms of dodging and scoring. Uh, Kara Urbank, the graduate student um, for Boston College, also had a really good game, causing two turnovers, as well as scoring, uh, I believe, four times. It was a tough day in general for the goalies, but BC's Rachel Hall ended up making a few big saves down the stretch that ended up securing the win. Uh, for Duke... Kat Berry played her best game of the season, scoring four goals. Um, she had, had come into the game with only nine goals on the season, but added a, quite a few to that total. 
and Duke played really well early on and led at the half. But late on, uh, BC was able to control more of the draws and uh, taking advantage and eventually win the game. Um, Duke's star attack woman, Gabby Rosenzweig, who transferred from Penn, was held to just one assist. Um, she was face guarded by Melanie Welch from BC the entire game. And I think one thing to note from this game is just how physical the games can get in Division One women's lacrosse. Uh, Duke had five yellow cards. BC surprisingly had none, but I think Duke's coaching staff would have been very unhappy with that. Um, so BC now moves to eight and one on the season, and I expect them to remain in the top three, or top four rather, or move into the top four. And Duke falls to six and five, and they're doing especially poorly in the ACC. They only have one ACC win on the year, I believe, against Virginia. And so if they want to remain within touch with the top four of Notre Dame, BC, UNC, and Syracuse, then they're going to need an ACC win soon. Yeah, I mean, it really seems like the uh, the ACC is quite the gauntlet when it comes to women's lacrosse. But, um, but yeah, why don't we transition to the men's side? And, and it looks like um, there were some uh, there were some other primetime ACC matchups um, for for the men as well. Indeed, and you know, I'll be talking all pretty much all ACC because for lacrosse, that's where it is. And after the COVID pandemic, the rich only got richer as so many Ivy League athletes um, transferred into ACC schools because they're so academically strong as well as being great in athletics. And so um, in the number one, number two matchup that we saw on Thursday night um, is a great example of this. So number one, Duke took down number two, UNC, 12 to 11 in overtime. And this was a matchup that we expected to be you know, high scoring because it's the two best offenses in all of men's lacrosse. But it was really the defenses and the goalkeepers who came up huge under the lights. Uh, Duke's Mike Adler, who had a really good game against Syracuse the week before, made 17 saves on 28 shots. And the freshman goal, goaltender for UNC, Colin Krieg, who's played really well this season as well, made 14 saves on 26 shots. And both of them made big saves in overtime. And truthfully, it looked like either one could have won the game. So Carolina came out pretty hot. In the first half, they scored efficiently, looking like their usual uh, usual offense, more or less. Um, and on defense, uh, North Carolina was able to initially slow down the Duke offense, adopting a unique defensive scheme. They put their defenseman, senior defenseman Cam Macri, on Michael Sowers, who was the preseason Tawarton favorite. Um, so he just face guarded him the whole game. And then they put a short stick on Duke attackman Joe Robertson. So the first move worked pretty well. Sowers was held to one assist. Um, he got involved in the picking game and probably contributed in ways that don't show up in the box score to one or two more goals. But overall, they did a really good job covering Sowers. But it didn't end up mattering as Robertson, who they put the short stick on, um, really exploded for four goals and three assists, playing especially well in the second half in an overtime. And he won the game on an underneath dodge and finish against a short stick, which really showed he showed a dynamic dodging threat that he hasn't had to all season. But he certainly showed that it is part of his game, um, which is going to make it tough for opponents to run this kind of scheme against Duke. Um, UNC's offense looked pretty out of sorts. Usually they move the ball really well, shoot 
very high percentage shots. Um, on Thursday, no, none of them finished above three points. Uh, the D1 points leader, Chris Gray, who is my Twarton favorite right now, um, was held to two goals and one assist on 11 shots, which is just unlike him. And overall, they didn't have the ball all that much either, as Duke's Jake Naso completely dominated the faceoff game, winning 15 of 24. So Carolina dropped their first of the season, or 8-1, and one, and Duke stayed perfect at 10-0. and 0, And I do believe they will keep the number one ranking this week. And then, in another ACC matchup on Saturday, uh, Notre Dame traveled to the Carrier Dome to take on Syracuse. And pulled out a huge win after dropping the previous game against Virginia. Uh, they won 18-11, to which is the second time Syracuse has lost 18-11 to in the Carrier Dome this season. Um, losing their opener to Army as well. Um, the faceoffs in this game were really the deciding factor. Uh, Notre Dame tandem Kyle Gallagher and Charlie Leonard, who individually, both of them might be the best faceoff man in the ACC, uh, excepting maybe Naso from Duke. Um, they went 23 of 32. Um, Gallagher, Gallagher won 15, and Leonard won 8. Uh, Leonard scored a goal, and Gallagher had an assist. And so the field was completely tilted towards the Irish, and they took full advantage of this. Uh, sophomore attackman, or he might be a junior now, Pat Kavanaugh played his best game of the season. Um, he really also showed, he's another player who showed that he can dodge when his team needs him to. Um, he's he's up there among the NCAA leaders in assists this season, but he has not really shown a dynamic dodging threat until this game where he scored a nice backhanded goal, um, as well as goals on two other Dodgers in the first half to finish with four goals and five assists. Um, Notre Dame's final three goals were all assisted by Kavanaugh, passed to Will York, who started on attack after playing well against Virginia. Um, He's a transfer from Bucknell, and he's having a really good season, adding an extra dimension to the Notre Dame offense. Uh, Griffin Westland also played his best game this season, scoring four times. Um, For Syracuse, the offense was able to score when they got the ball, but they barely got the ball throughout the game. So they they ended up being held to 11 goals, which tied their lowest total of the season, and they didn't score at all in the fourth quarter. Um, They had a hot start. Uh, Stephen Rafis scored a couple nice goals on dodges in the first quarter. But in the second quarter, Notre Dame scored nine goals to Syracuse's three, and they never relinquished the lead from there. Um, second line midfielder Owen Siebold had a pretty nice game. He scored twice, but overall Syracuse was unable to get anything going off ball. They scored only three assisted goals. And I think my takeaway from this is that Syracuse is not going to be able to win these games if they're losing, if they're losing 70% of the faceoffs on the day. The good thing is they'll get a chance at Notre Dame again when they play on May 1st in South Bend, Indiana. Sounds great. It should be uh, should be an interesting rematch to see. Um, so I guess moving on to just the general um, results that you saw over the weekend. Um, are there any other um, notable upsets or, or big results that you want to talk about? Yeah, so the Notre Dame women took down Virginia 12-10, a pretty good game. I wasn't able to watch it. But um, um, goaltender Bridget Dean for Notre Dame continues to show why she was the um, First team preseason All American choice, despite there being three or four really really good goalies in the Division One women's lacrosse. 
And then Louisville got their first ACC win of the year against Virginia Tech, 13 to 9. These are both teams that I really like, especially I've watched a lot of Virginia Tech, um, who is actually the worst team in the ACC by record, but honestly could be ranked in the top 20 if they just pick up a few more wins. Um, And that was big for Louisville because they were coming off a week where they played Boston College twice, played them really close in overtime the first game, and then got absolutely smoked. Uh, 18 to three in the second game, so it was a big bounce back win for Louis the Louisville Cardinals. Um, on the men's side, Lehigh, a team who's been playing really well this year, uh, beat Army 13-12 on a goal from uh, Cole Kirst to move into a pole position in the Patriot League. And after beating Loyola for the first time in program history earlier this season, they they've now beaten Army. So they've beaten the two best teams in the Patriot League, and they look like they are going to be um, getting that automatic qualifying bid for the NCAA tournament if they can manage to hold on to the success and win the Patriot League tournament. And then Michigan, a team with a lot of young talent who plays really hard, plays well, well well-coached, they got their second Big Ten win of the year, 13-10 over Johns Hopkins, which was a bit of an upset, although Hopkins has looked out of sorts this year under new coach um, Peter Milliman. And I think the Wolverines are a team to watch. They're a lot of fun to watch. A lot of freshmen, a lot of sophomores in the starting lineups. And I think they're here to stay, here to compete in the Big Ten. That was really cool to watch. It's great to hear about those uh, those other results as well. Interesting that um, um, you know that um, you see some see some contenders in uh, some of the smaller conferences like the Patriot League. Um, so I guess looking ahead to next weekend, um, are there any games that, um, you want to feature, um, as far as being, as far as being good, good matchups? Yeah. So for the women's lacrosse, I'm going to highlight on Thursday, uh, Louisville plays Duke. Um, as mentioned, Louisville just got their first ACC win of the season and Duke really needs an ACC win to try to stay close in the ACC. Um, I'm going to go with Duke in this one by three goals. Uh, Maddie Jenner has been really good in the draw circle for them. So I expect she played well against Charlotte North um, of BC. And I expect Duke to do- completely dominate the draw circle, which ought to skew the possessions in, in their favor enough that their offense should be able to get going and score enough to uh, hold off Louisville. But I wouldn't count out Louisville. I think there is potential for the upset. but I'm going to go with Duke in this one. And then for the men's, um, we have a big CAA matchup coming up. It's a rematch between Delaware and Drexel. Uh, Delaware won the first game 19-12. to But in the CAA, a repeat blowout among these conference foes who know each other so well is really rare. Um, so I expect a close physical game, which is very, has become pretty typical of the CAA now. Um, Delaware is one of the best teams to watch in general this year. Um, Drexel is coming off a three-game win streak, and they beat UMass um, in a bit of an upset uh, this last Saturday. So I'm thinking Delaware by two goals, but I think Drexel Drexel is a bit of a dark horse in the CAA, and they're having a really solid season. Great. Well, thank you for those predictions. And now um, moving on to a bit more of a local topic. Um, let's talk some uh, some Tufts lacrosse. Love to hear what uh, 
what the women were up to in their opener against uh, Connecticut College. Yeah, so on Saturday, the Tufts women traveled to Connecticut College um, for their first game in over a year, and they took care of business, beating the Camels 17-5. to uh, Senior Catherine Lawless, who led the team in points in 2020, started strong. She had nine points, five goals, and four assists. Um, fellow senior Emily Games, who used an extra year of eligibility to return in 2021, had three goals, two of them coming on free positions. Uh, the Tufts goaltender, Molly Laliberti, who was the U.S. lacrosse preseason pick for Division Three Women's Goaltender of the Year. Um, she made eight saves on 13 shots. And four players for the Jumbos caused multiple turnovers. And their defense was quite strong, holding the Camels to only five. Uh, sophomore midfielder Thammy Rothstein had four draw controls and also scored on a free position opportunity. Uh, I got the chance to ask her about the game and how it feels to be back playing. Um, as you said, that really the team has been working really hard, even when there was no set plan to come back in place. Um, and this win really serves to show that hard work pays off and reminds us, reminds everyone that it's worth it. She said that they played really well as a team, especially for the first game back, and that even though the season is short this year, um, the whole team is really grateful for however many games they do get to play. Um, COVID has kind of reminded everyone in all sports that nothing is guaranteed and we can't take anything for granted. So she says that the team is really trying to embrace the little things and enjoy the moment. Uh, I thought that was really nice to see um, some young talent for Tufts take the field and score, score as well. Uh, up next for the women is a trip to Maine to play Colby on the 10th, and their home opener is on the 17th, um, playing Connecticut College again. Uh, for the men, uh, they'll open at home this Saturday on April 10th at 2 p.m., and we are really looking forward to seeing that one as they are ranked um, number two in the media poll right now, I believe. That's awesome. Glad to hear that, um, you know, the results so far on the women's side and, and sort of the forecast for both of those teams look great. Um, so with that, thank you for thank you for talking all things college lacrosse, Joe. Uh, good to have you on the show for the first time. And uh, we look forward to having you back again as this uh, as this season progresses. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Sure thing. Lastly, we will speak to Trevor Russo about uh, first. League of Legends uh, in the tournament phase of the season. And then after that, we will discuss uh, men's and women's college basketball. How are you doing this evening, Trevor? Oh, oh, Max, it is good to hear your voice. I haven't been on this podcast in a while. Um, you know, I've been good. I had a, uh, I had a nap today. Uh, woke up because I uh, had some existential dread about graduating today. So to segue into, into league, uh, the league season, much like my career at Tufts, is almost over. Uh, actually, no. League season's over. I messed it up. Doesn't matter. Uh, we're going to keep going ahead. Basically, uh, if you've been following JumboCast for the past, uh, actually since around September or October, as you know, no uh, real spring or no real sports at Tufts. So we've been doing the League of Legends broadcasts uh, all the way through the regular season and through the playoffs. We had a uh, a special League of Legends uh, broadcast, which I believe was our highest performing podcast to date. 
Um, and now, uh, unfortunately, I, uh, I believe it was uh, back on March 21st, uh, Tufts was eliminated from the CSL, which is the uh, Collegiate Star League playoffs. Uh, first, they fell to uh, the University of Waterloo. Uh, back in the round of 16 on the winner's side. It was a double elimination tournament. Uh, they actually, um, remarkably, the U Waterloo B team who beat Tufts to send them to the loser's bracket actually uh, has gone on to not drop a single game in this entire tournament. Uh, currently, they are in the winner's finals, and if they win this next game, they will be in the grand finals Uh with a heavy, heavy advantage over whoever comes in the losers' finals. So if Tufts uh, ends up losing to the eventual champions, you know, I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, Max, but I feel like that's never the worst thing in the world to have happen to you, right? Whenever you can say you lost to the champs, I feel like that's that's a victory in its own right. So I, I would that agree. And it kind of it kind of reminds me of um of last fall, fall of 2019, the Tufts men's club soccer team ended up going to the collegiate club soccer finals and played, I believe they played the Tufts eight team and ended up beating them. So it's always, it's always kind of funny to me when, you know, you see uh, this B team, which should be technically worse than the A team, but ends up uh, doing better than them. I'd be curious to know how, how well, Waterloo A did. Actually Waterloo A is in the, uh, is in a different league altogether, which is considered like a higher up league. So mm. <laughs> think about how scary that is that, that you Waterloo's B team might win this tournament and they're not even in the upper leagues, how good their A team is. Uh, so they, so let me, let me recap actually the whole tournament for you. So uh, start out in the round of 128. Basically, I believe it was out of 114 different colleges competing. Uh, Tufts was actually able to, and it was a strange situation in the round of 128. You have uh, Tufts winning, um, in a best of one, so there was only one game they played uh, against UMBC, who uh, they were heavy, heavy favorites over uh, Tufts. Tufts was able to pull off the upset win in pretty convincing fashion, partially because their uh, one of I believe UMBC's best player um, was driving home and did not end up attending the game. Um, then they upset Rutgers, uh, who was the 29th seed versus Tufts' 93 seed, two to one. In uh, honestly, uh, I will take take full responsibility for this. Uh, we uh, we do not have the vods unfortunately for that game, but uh, for those who witnessed it, the Rutgers uh, win, uh, the Tufts win over Rutgers was honestly one of the most uh, fun I've ever had watching a sporting event. Uh, Tufts was able to basically imagine the equivalent of two pick sixes. Um, down by 14, essentially, in a football game to come back and win. That was basically what Tufts was able to do. Uh, then they went on to play U Waterloo uh, in the round of 32, lost to them there. Uh, uh, played Penn State. Uh, Penn State's B team defeated Penn State's B team 2-1 to one in a pretty close set. Uh, were able to come back uh, and win that one. And then finally, uh, a couple weeks ago, they lost to... Uh, VCU's uh, Virginia Commonwealth University's A team, two to nothing. Uh, first game wasn't really close. Second game was a lot closer, but ultimately, um, just uh, I think they they sort of ran up against 
against a brick wall in the end, but an admirable uh, run, I think, for the Tufts B team coming from a seven and three record, almost barely making the playoffs to making it all the way to the round of 16, uh, 16A. So I believe they they, lo- they leave the tournament at 33rd place. Uh, I'm not really sure that number, but it seems about right. So uh, overall, they really outperformed their seed and they looked really good throughout this stretch. That's great to see. Hopefully they can continue this momentum into next season um, and yeah, hopefully get a better seed going into the tournament. So I guess now we'll move on to some of the March Madness action. First, looking Different at the women's side. Yeah, absolutely. So Trevor, why don't you recap that um, women's championship that saw Stanford win its first championship, I believe, in 29 years. Love to hear your your thoughts about that. Yeah, it's strange to see a championship that does not involve uh, the two biggest names in women's college basketball right now, who I believe uh, were UConn, just for that storied history. They were a one seed. And as, as, in addition, you had Baylor. I don't believe they were uh, as heavily favored, but they're, they were certainly like an outspoken team. And the UConn-Baylor game was uh, highly controversial, uh, as, as many people heard. Um, but... Yeah, so essentially, um, Stanford won 54-53. Uh, they were able to uh, stop the uh, sorry. They were able to stop the uh, the last second shot attempt uh, by Arizona's uh, Ari McDonald. Uh, she was actually being covered by three different people uh, and was still able to get a shot off that hit the rim. Uh, ultimately, Stanford should have won this game. They out-rebounded uh, Arizona heavily, I believe, the uh, by a 47-29 to 29 margin on rebounds. However, Ariz- Stanford also committed 21 turnovers due partially to a, uh, a press strategy that uh, Arizona employed throughout the game. And also Ari McDonald, from what I saw, was knocking down triples left and right. Uh, so... A little closer than Stanford wanted it, but Arizona really showed out. And honestly, it's really cool to see the uh, the interest in women's college basketball sort of rising to that national profile. I know it's always been there, but it feels it, it feels like to me it's it's definitely uh, getting the respect it's finally uh, deserved. I guess if that makes sense. Um, and uh, also, I'd like to note the fact that in my women's bracket, I had Stanford winning. So. That was also pretty cool. We love to see when that when that champion is predicted correctly, especially when you know, like you said, it's it's outside of those those two big um, those two big powerhouses in UConn and Baylor. And I think when it comes to generating more of that interest in women's college hoops, I think it always helps in whatever the sport is to have a little more parity. So nice to see a new a new name in the mix at the top. Exactly. There. You also had that controversy too with the uh the differences between facilities you know uh for the men's and the women's tournaments like the the weight rooms i'm sure a lot of people saw the video which if the ncaa wants to maintain that's a non-profit fine but provide equal if you're a non-profit provide equal facilities to both both uh both organizations or just don't call yourself a non-profit so that's that i guess uh but i guess if we're talking about uh the men's team we might as well talk about uh that gonzaga ucla game uh max did you see that shot did you see that shot 
Sadly, I have not, but I did hear about it. Um, Jalen Suggs sinking the game winner to send the Zags to the championship. But but yeah, unpack it for me, Trevor. Give me a play by play. All right. And uh, and yeah, your just your thoughts on it. So um, so for our viewers who don't know, or uh, or I guess listeners who don't know, or were able to catch the game or part portions of it, Gonzaga, number one seed, uh, undefeated team uh, thus far. Um, went up against the seeded 11th UCLA Bruins in the Pac-12. I don't believe even UCLA beat, uh, won their conference championship, but they have looked uh, incredibly dominant. They upset um, a bunch of teams on the way here, including an upset uh, of Michigan. And, you know, despite the fact that they were able to upset Michigan, who were a really highly regarded uh, one seed. A lot of people still had Gonzaga uh, blowing out the UCLA Bruins in this one, but that is not what actually ended up happening. Um, it was a, I can tell you just from watching the whole thing, it was a close game throughout. Um, no team was really able to establish much of a lead. Uh, free throws were being missed. It was honestly a bit, uh, I think the most concerning thing if you're Gonzaga was the three point defense. Uh, it seemed like the Bruins were really just getting a lot of open looks from deep. Uh, if you look at the stats, UCLA converted 47.1% of their three-point field goals against uh, the Bulldogs, which is a concerning stat because of the fact that now in the championship tonight at 9.20, as of you know the time of this filming, we uh, that Gonzaga Bulldogs team is going to have to face off against a Baylor, Bruins te- uh, Baylor Bears team, excuse me, that uh, that was the top three-point shooting team in all of college basketball. And that is a scary, scary sight uh, for the Bulldogs. But um, actually, to even get it to overtime, you had this crazy sequence where uh, Johnny Juzang, who played out of his mind this tournament, he actually, I believe, finished with 29 points, six rebounds, and two assists in this game, uh, drives towards the hoop with about six seconds left. Um, and uh, Drew Timmy, the uh, star on Gonzaga, uh, sort of gets in the lane, isn't really finished setting his feet, but he's mostly um, mostly there. Uh, they call the charge on Juzang for knocking Timmy over, and that actually turns the ball over uh, to the Bulldogs, who uh, then are able to send the game to overtime. Bit of a controversial call. Uh, you know, it's, it's debatable uh, one way or the other. I went and tried to do some research on what people thought, and the two opinions were absolutely that was a charge or absolutely that was not a charge. The refs were biased. Um, so, you know, I don't think we'll ever really know. Uh, but to set up that Jalen Suggs shot, um, UCLA actually had the ball uh, to end the possession uh, it, with about five to six seconds left. Uh, they go in for the shot, miss the shot. Uh, uh, I think believe I believe Juzang tried to take the take a jump shot, missed it. Uh, the rebound went to the Bulldogs, and Jalen Suggs just he just pulls up. You know those those half court. It wasn't really a half court. He was more of a. Uh, it was a little bit in front of the half court, but those sorts of heaves never go in, Max. I mean, have you ever seen one of those? Last second heaves just go in and not only go in but bank. Incredible. Outside of stuff. the days of 
outside of the days of Jim or Fredette, I have not really seen it since. No, it was it honestly one of the I have to say one of the greatest endings to any game that uh, I think we've seen in the NCAA, NCAA tournament history. It was a sensational shot. Uh, of course, Jalen Suggs said that he knew it was going to go in, which is complete crap. No one ever knows that. Um, I've heard athletes say that before. Athletes, if you're saying that, you're lying to yourself. You didn't know. You're just you're just kind of battling the forces in your head. But ultimately, I would recommend for everyone to go out and watch that shot again. It was it, it, it's beautiful. I mean, he literally just pulls up. Uh, the coach actually said afterwards that he practices that shot in the gym all the time. So it wasn't super surprising to him, but it's, it, it not only went in, it banked off. Uh, and it's just a heartbreaker for UCLA to get this far, almost upsetting, uh, you know, the overall favorite to win the entire tournament, the 30, 30 and O, uh, Gonzaga Bulldogs. Um, it was incredible. Uh, the if we're going to transition, I guess a little bit to Houston Baylor. They uh, that number one seed had a much easier time defeating uh, defeating their opponents, the Houston Cougars, uh, a two seed versus Baylor Bears, a one seed. Um, did you happen to catch any of this game, uh, Max, or or see how it went? I did not. I know they I know they blew them out, and I've caught some of the previous Baylor action in the tournament. They looks pretty dominant, very athletic team. Like you said, rangy at three. So yeah, break down what you saw in that matchup against Houston. Well, um, I'm going to actually uh, tell you what I saw. And what I saw was the University of Houston uh, putting on one of the most inept displays of offense I have ever seen or heard from a team playing the sport of basketball. And I think, you know, that's a that's a pretty sharp claim to make against a team. But let me explain to you um, a, a peculiar little stat here. Um, at 17-18 in the first half, uh, Dijon Giroux makes a two-point jump shot. That is the only, those are the that is the only field goal that the Houston Cougars will make besides Marcus Sasser who completely balled out in this game. He was the only thing keeping this from a maybe a 40-point blowout uh, by the Baylor Bears. Um, yeah, so from 17-18, Dejan Giroux makes a two-point jump shot. No other Houston player besides Marcus Sasser makes a field goal until 1946 in the second half. It takes almost a full half of time for, for them to make another shot. Now, of course, by this point, uh, Sasser has, I think Sasser just kept making three-pointer after three-pointer, barely keeping the lead to 20 for Baylor. But it, I mean, what, what do you think of when you hear that sort of thing, Max? I mean, it's, it's it, Baylor just completely locked them down. I think of the the Trailblazers at their worst, relying on Damian Lillard, you know, sort of, um, what do they call it, hero ball, that uh, obviously for most teams does not really work, and, and case in point with Houston once again. Yeah, uh, I would. I will also say that Quentin Grimes, a very highly regarded player, I believe he was in the mix for best player in all of college basketball, uh, usually a sharpshooter, great defender. Uh, he was matched up onto Davion Mitchell, the best defender on the Baylor Bears. But he was also matched onto um, a lot of different players in this game. Uh, you had him on 
uh, Mark Vital, who's I believe is a forward, uh, three or four different players were able to shut down the Cougars' best player. He had a dreadful game, uh, four for 12, one for eight from deep. And a lot of those those shots, uh, he had a bunch of turnovers as well. Um, and of course, when you aren't scoring to keep up with Baylor, uh, it's only a matter of time before their three-point excellence is going to shine through. Uh, and it clearly did in this. They, the halftime score was 45-20 to 20, uh, for a Houston Cougars team that, uh, you know, has had a really explosive offense this year. I believe they were the best offensive rebounding team in all of college basketball. And uh, the Baylor Bears were actually doing the out-rebounding against Houston. So um, disappointing. Uh, personally disappointing to me, who had Houston in the uh, finals, was very close to winning some money, which would have been nice. Uh, but now we have this matchup of one seeds in a year where uh, we had so many crazy upsets. Uh, I mean, Oral Roberts, uh, you have uh, Oregon State making it uh, super far, UCLA making it to the final four. Um, North Texas, uh, Illinois going down in the sweets, uh, the round of 32. It it was a crazy tournament, uh, Max. And it, it's kind of funny that you, that after all this, after probably the weirdest seeding and the weirdest year in college basketball, like in college basketball history, we now have the matchup between the two best teams in college basketball in Gonzaga and Baylor. And um, I really don't know who's going to come out on top. I think, honestly, my pick, uh, despite the fact that I want Gonzaga to win because I have them uh, winning this game in my bracket, I, I think the Baylor Bears actually might come out on top here. I think that uh, that Gonzaga has not really played at their peak efficiency for for a little bit now, uh, save for that, that Elite Eight game uh, against, I believe it was... Uh, I believe it was USC. Um, they, uh, especially against UCLA, they allowing a 47% three-point shooting uh, effort uh, against UCLA is one thing. But if you allow that against Baylor, they're going to get up to a huge lead early on. And uh, I think also the, the, the defensive prowess of Baylor is not to be underestimated too. You know, this is a Gonzaga team that is probably... Uh, one of the best offensive teams we've seen in recent memory. I, I think that Baylor's going to have a good time uh, shutting them down tonight. I think it'll be really close, of course, but ultimately I think Baylor has just looked so good throughout this tournament uh, in the later stages, really. And I think also they've had uh, the chance to face better competition, higher-seeded competition than Gonzaga has. Uh, ironically, the, uh, they were supposed to play on December 5th, uh, that was canceled due to, I believe, COVID concerns. So this is the first meeting. It's going to be the last meeting. And I would highly recommend that everyone tunes into that. It's going to be really fun to watch. Yeah, it is funny how, like you said, in a year full of upsets, we've kind of gotten rid of the chaff and are left with what were the two sort of clearest best teams in the field. And it'll be interesting to see how Gonzaga's offense fares against Baylor's defense. I'm certainly yeah, uh, looking forward to the I, matchup. Oh, if I can jump in here real quick. Um, I think it was it was actually, it could have been even funnier uh, based on how this whole year has gone. Uh, if Michigan had beaten UCLA, the final four in probably one of the most upset heavy years in 
college basketball history would have been one seed, one seed, two seed, one seed. And uh, thankfully, we didn't see that. Uh, thankfully, UCLA put on uh, that dominant performance. But uh, ultimately, I think after all the all the fun, all the wacky parts of March Madness, now we're getting into the good stuff. Uh, and yeah, I'm definitely going to be watching. And I don't know, Max. Uh, we'll see if my predictions come out on top or if I uh, look really stupid. So I hope for the best for your sake. Um, great. So thank you for recapping all things college basketball, Trevor. It's a pleasure having you on. Of and course. We will, we will see how those predictions fare. Yeah, thank you. Also, uh, PSA, uh, today is the opening day for uh, people with certain medical conditions, uh, as well as people 55 and over to get vaccinated. So if you want to see more fun jumbo cast action or just want to, uh, you know, stay safe and bring the world back to normal, uh, definitely look up how to get your vaccine. I'm talking only in Massachusetts terms, of course, but make sure to look up the eligibility requirements in your state. Thank you for the message, Trevor. It's much appreciated. And we look forward to hopefully in that vein, getting back to live sports with people in attendance come next fall. We'll we will see how that shapes out. All right. Thank you for thank you for joining us, Trevor, and we will see you all next week.